Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Casaglo. And today, we have a badass sales leader who has also been a multiple-time 30MPC guest. It's Kyle AC. He's the RVP of sales over at MongoDP. And holy smokes, if you thought he had sales chops, this man has leadership chops, too. Mark, why should people listen? Well, first of all, Kyle AC... He's obviously his last name is because he's cool as a cucumber. This dude has got it going on. And what I mean by that is I always say process makes you great. Documentation makes you legendary. And this guy has documented what he thinks works for reps on how to be competent at the job so that he can create a very structured coaching program for individual sellers, not at a team or org level. And I think that he's just really found that secret button of what do young sellers want in their career to really level up and perform well. And what they want is growth, personal growth. And I think he's really tapped in on how to scale personal growth and individual coaching. But wait, before we get started, Kyle also referenced a pretty massive competency framework where he has all the different disciplines and skills and sales and the metrics and ways he trains to each of them. And you can get that spreadsheet right now in the show notes before the episode starts. We'll reference it again at the end in the outro, but you should go grab it again now. Stay tuned and a three, two, one, let's ride. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Did you know that 60% of proposals are viewed on a mobile device, which means if you're sending a text stock or a slide deck, the formatting is going to look really ugly and you're going to make a bad impression. Luckily, our friends at Quiller are here to help. Quiller pages are built on the web, which means they're mobile responsive and they actually look good on a cell phone. And Quiller is having an offer right now to upgrade your proposal from an ugly text stock to a Quiller page for free. So you can see what your boring proposal looks like as a beautiful Quiller page. There is a link in the show notes to take advantage of the offer. Today's show is sponsored by Calendly. If you're interested in accelerating your sales cycle, improving your prospects experience, and booking more demos, there's one scheduling automation platform on the market that does all three. Calendly offers team-based scheduling, solutions and integrations for every department, and lead routing to instantly book qualified meetings from your website and match known leads to reps based on real-time Salesforce assignment. I find it really helpful when I have to book meetings with multiple people on my side so that I don't have to coordinate everyone's calendars. Get started today by checking out the show notes or calendly.com. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. All right, Kyle, welcome to the show. We start every show with your top three actionable takeaways. Let's get your three. All right, let's start with my favorite, my good day framework. I found that with every team I've led going in, there's a lack of clarity on what a great day actually looks like. What I don't want is micromanagement. What I do want is accountability. And so I recommend for every leader, sit down with your reps and help them define 
from their point of view, what a great day looks like. Now, any top performing rep will love to be held accountable to what they agree makes them successful, but you have to define it. You have to have buy-in on it, and then you have to track it because things that are tracked and measured and reported on will perform better than things that are not. Boom. What's number two? Number two is my anti-skill will matrix. I don't want to label people as high skill or low will. It's too broad. I want to go understand people at the competency or the skill level. And even beyond that, I don't want to go say, oh, a rep is good or bad at prospecting. It's still too broad. Because within prospecting, there is account mapping. There's understanding personas. There's messaging. There's operating rhythm. There's all these aspects. So as a leader, you need to go figure out what are all the micro skills that make your best people great? What are the skills they're exemplifying? Then you need to figure out a way to track performance and progress for all your reps against those skills and build your performance improvement plans around those competencies where your reps need the most help for immediate impact. Uh-oh, he's talking performance improvement plans. What's number three? My third is my favorite metric, which is next quarter's weighted pipeline. So quick definition, if you have a 100K deal and you're 50% confident it's going to close, that's $50,000 of weighted pipeline, 50% of $100,000. The reason why I love this is it's always controllable. No matter what a rep's current pipeline status is, they can go generate more pipeline. It's not paralyzing, where if I go tell a rep with bad pipeline, you need to go hit your quota this quarter. There's not a ton they can do with long sales cycle to make that happen. And then my favorite outcome, it actually improves your billing pace because consistent pipeline generation to the quarter leads to greater linearity in your billing later on. All right. Well, listen, I think there's three really interesting things to explore in there, Kyle. So let's take the last one, which is the one I love the most, which is the anti-skill will concept, right? I think that a lot of people want to bucket reps into, hey, they got the skill, but they don't want to do the work or they're willing to do the work. They just don't know how to do it. Dig into that a little bit more for me. Like, How are you taking those competencies and breaking them down so that there's not like a 30 things that you're grading skill versus will on. So the, the funny thing is sometimes there are quite a few things that you grade, but then it's what you choose to focus on to prioritize. I have never in all my years doing this, I have never had a rep go through every single competency because I don't think there's any rep that I've ever worked with that is actually extremely proficient at every single detail in the sales process. But what it allows me to do is go identify what are the most urgent opportunities for progression. And so when I'm looking at a rep, usually it pretty well aligns with top of funnel towards bottom of the funnel. Top of funnel is often for a newer rep more urgent because even if we go improve negotiation incrementally, they're going to be better off getting way more pipeline than increasing average deal size by three to 5%, right? But when you have reps more in the middle of the ramp, being able to go look at the entire sales process and identify the skills where they are weakest, you can work collaboratively to determine where should we spend our time to get the greatest output if we were to improve this skill incrementally. So how many different attributes do you think that are worth measuring? Are you talking like a dozen, a couple dozen? Like how many things are you kind of assessing and who's doing that assessment? So at Manga right now, we have a little over 30 that we actually look at, but we don't go teach all those ever. The most we'll focus on in one quarter is three. If it's a complex skill, no more than one. 
The way the assessment works is every quarter, the rep and the RD will do an assessment of each competency, and then they'll agree together what is most urgent to go work on. Mm. Keep in mind, a lot of the things that a rep may be deficient in that we're not going to work on right now, we have support functions to go help. Complex negotiation, you're going to pull in your RD, you're going to pull in me. Very technical, you're going to bring in our solution architect team. We have support to go help close those deficiencies. Then on a weekly basis, we're working on these skills and we're talking about how we're tracking towards the metrics we agreed to be improved upon if we improve the skill. So very simple example, let's say the skill we're working on is messaging. We might be looking at the number of calls and emails required to set a meeting. We want to decrease that ratio. We look at the baseline, we look at the goal, and then the operating rhythm is we teach what good messaging looks like, we show good examples, and then we have the rep show the activity, and then we get feedback on that, and then we repeat as necessary until we hit the agreed upon metric to show that we've mastered that skill, and then we move on. But this is an ongoing part of our operating rhythm. When I meet with my leadership team, we talk about the plans they have for their reps, I give input on where they should focus, and when they get stuck on, well, I'm not sure how to measure progress with a skill, or I'm not sure how to coach this skill, that's where I can weigh in and hopefully get some guidance on the right way to approach. Does every skill have like a qualitative competency area that you're looking at and then a qualitative measure or are there multiple quantitative measures underneath? Like help me understand how you're organizing that because 30 things is a whole lot to measure and then each one has a lot of nuance inside of it is my guess. So is it really prescriptive or is it just like, hey, messaging we feel like could improve, but here's five areas to go inspect to see which area we need to really assign a metric to. So the metric piece the earlier in the sales cycle, the simpler it is. Because once you get to bottom of the funnel, if I look at something like close rate or average deal size, there are so many things that can go into that that might not even be the competency that we're working on. And so what I find is for some of the more advanced skills, it's a bit more qualitative, actually. If it's things like we need to improve at how we are uncovering and teaching negative consequences, the follow through may be as simple as the RD is going to review your command of the message deck, agree that they're quoting negative consequences, and that can be the way that we're looking at success. For things that are a bit more easy to quantify, like discovery skills, how well are we finding pain? That could be as simple as, well, what is our conversion rate from initial meeting to opportunity? Those are more quantitative. What I don't want to do, though, is overcomplicate this, right? I don't want to, even though there's a lot of things we can work on, I'm only ever looking at one to three, and I'm only measuring based on one possible outcome. And it's either going to be qualitative, if it's more complex and nuanced, or quantitative, if it's more straightforward. So Kyle, just to get a sense of the scale that this is happening about, could you remind me how many folks are in your org as it stands today? Uh, a little over 35 right now, if you include my leadership team. So over 35. So let's say that I'm running a team of 35 and maybe that's three, four, however many managers you have. What does the training program look like for an org of that size? Is it one big 35 person, all hands, and then the managers are doing the one-on-one in reinforcement? Do you prefer to keep this in a more small group type of setting? The way that I look at it is whenever I have cohorts that are at similar competency levels, I want to group those together for peer learning. It's much more scalable. And so we have the same leader-led onboarding program for all of our new hires. They go through all the fundamentals together, and we have ways we track their progress to graduate them through that. However, once they get through onboarding, that's where we begin to see deviation and how quickly reps progress. 
based on their prior experience, their aptitude, whatever it might be. That's where training and enablement becomes one-on-one and is a requirement for me. That's my biggest thing for my group. If you get anything from being in my org, it's going to be a targeted coaching program. At the org-wide level, we're always looking for opportunities for what is a consistent deficit across the team. And then we try to approach those as a group. It's just really challenging to teach something effectively to a large group when you have such a range and experience, tenure, and acumen for what we're selling, right? And so if I'm going to over-index on one or the other, I'm going to over-index on enabling my RDs to go do really effective one-to-one coaching and training because that is what I have found to make the biggest impact for individual rep development. So I love hearing that. I, it's sad how many leaders don't quite understand how important that coaching is. And coaching is always the thing that gets squeezed first. Like get into more deal calls, make sure your forecast is right, get into your numbers and coaching gets squeezed. How are you, Kyle? Like, it sounds like you're doing a really good job holding back the squeeze and like making people focused on like, this is our biggest impact. You can forecast 10% better, but coaching 10% better is going to have way more impact than forecasting 10% better. Like how are you holding back the tide of pressure to do the things that most sales managers are doing right now besides coaching? Yeah, at the risk of sounding super, super cheesy, it's just I, I've kind of bought into how I want to lead my org and I'm going to stick to that mission. And my biggest thing is if you bet your career on my org, you are going to lead my org a better seller. Like that, and that is what's most important to me. I'm going to enable you. I'm going to teach you. Then I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to ask you to work really hard. But the beautiful thing I've found is when I have a culture of we develop you, I have a culture of accountability for you to what you agree makes you effective. The result has always been high quota attainment, high promotions. That leads to high engagement scores. That leads to low attrition. And so even though I'm not putting the squeeze on as much, the results are good. And so they go do it. Listen, I think it's pretty much proven this kind of new generation of sellers. What they care about most is, are they getting coached up and growing? Like that's what they're addicted to. That's what drives them. That's what motivates them. And, you know, I can remember early in my sales career, that wasn't the case. And my generation of sellers were much more money motivated And I never understood, why won't you put in the time to grow yourself? But now this generation of sellers is coming up. It's like, just grow me. I know I'll make money if I grow. But there's a whole generation of leaders that are still like, we need to motivate them with comp plan and all that kind of stuff. But it sounds like you've really kind of zagged and like leaned into what that group of sellers really wants, which is that personal growth and coaching. That's awesome. I think I've also learned the importance of context. Like I've seen so many bad decisions made when people just look at data and don't go a layer deeper. I'm not against data. I love data. I love looking at data, but I've learned like I'm never going to go make a big decision off of just the data until I have conversations that validate my hypothesis. And so I think that human element, that understanding that comes from being close to the team, that plays a big role as well in creating a more positive culture than just the make more calls, make more dials kind of culture that is prevalent. I remember we rolled out Sandler at Carta. There was a new VP of sales in town and the org was something like a hundred odd people. And I was really eager to be developed. I was a younger rep at the time and I was soaking it all in. But there was an old guard of managers. There were something like 15 plus managers in that organization that were inherited by this VP and they were probably split 50-50. Half of them were like, all right, I'll give this thing a shot. 
half of them were like, go throw your upfront contract in the trash. And they would make jokes about the session after leaving, right? And so anytime the VP would try to like do something where he's going to be like, I want to make sure that all of our calls start with upfront contracts or something like that. It would be like shouting into the ether and then he would lose energy. And eventually it just became a training that happened once at a sales kickoff. You wasted two days and then no one ever actually ended up closing the loop and making sure that these reps actually did it. And so how do you get your middle managers bought into this thing? Because they're the ones who ultimately need to be having these day-to-day conversations with the reps. How do you make sure that they actually do these things? So when I first rolled out my good day framework in my org at Mongo, it was loosely rolled out in the other part of what was not yet my org. And it was not adopted at all. Because it's like, hey, we're going to try this. Apparently it works, go for it. And then it never went anywhere, right? It was trained on and then forgotten. Eventually that org rolled into my org and I wanted to implement it. And so I I sat down with a leader that had previously tentatively proposed it, but not executed it. And I just made sure that they were bought in. I walked them through my why for it, how I'd seen it work, the ownership they would have, and then literally worked with them to prepare to roll it out to their team. Then the next meeting they showed me why they were beginning to get bought in, their concerns with it. I helped resolve the concerns, but then I was with them to make sure that they understood the complete why behind it. And so I know that nothing groundbreaking, understand the why behind things, but I make sure that I'm not pushing my leaders to go do anything that they don't actually believe in. If they don't believe in it, I want to understand why and oftentimes make changes to it to make sure that they are bought in because oftentimes they're not bought in for a really good reason. And if they're not bought in because I'm missing something, I'm missing context, I'm missing perspective, I want them to correct me. So what we roll out, they're fully confident in. One of the worst things you can do as a second line or third line or whatever leader, I think, is pushing anything to the IC level that you don't have complete buy-in from your leadership team first. Because anything that requires change, discomfort, if you don't have that complete adoption, full buy-in, the message passed on is diluted. And then if it's 70% bought in the frontline leader level, it's going to be 30% at the IC level. Then your leader becomes less bought in because in their perceptions, well, we tried it and it's not working and then it all falls apart. So that's how I've tried to roll things out. I haven't always done it perfectly. I've rolled out plenty of things that have failed, but the things that have worked out really well have been when I take the time to get full buy-in, give my leaders input, make changes where necessary, and then roll it out more broadly. One of my first VPs of sales tell me you can be a filter or a microphone and you want your frontline managers to be a microphone for the company's message. But more often than not, they're filters because they don't buy in. They don't understand. They just feel like it's another methodology of the quarter or whatever. And I I really like that. Let's get people bought in and really into what we're doing. Guys, I want to go back to your first actionable takeaway. And the reason for that is I believe I'm going to spark an angry old man debate between me, who's a young person, not relatively, I'm I'm 31 year old living in a 70 year old's body. And then we got old man, get off my lawn, Mark, ready to pick a fight with Kyle. So Mark, I want to hear your perspective on this whole connects versus cold call activity debate. In other words, how do you think about holding someone to a 200 dial a week commit versus a 20 connect per week commit, for example? And why is that a different philosophy that you might have? Yeah. So to me, I think it's tomato, tomato, potato, potato. The thing that everybody is trying to solve for, in my opinion, 
is we don't want people to feel like we're just asking them to do empty calorie activity. And we also don't want to do something that allows them to just go do the numbers real quick and do something to get the numbers done. For example, 200 dials. If I could dial the same number 50 times, I can do that in 10 minutes if I want to do it right. So, well, maybe we should do connects instead. Well, guess what? I can call my mom five times and get my five connects in five minutes and move on too, right? So there's always a way to cheat. I think what's interesting is, is as a leader, you need to look upstream and downstream. And how far upstream do you want to go to help make sure that your team understands that there's still a connection to downstream results? Like the reason that Kyle does connects is because he wants people to have conversations because he wants people to get in the pipeline, right? You can go upstream to dials or you can stay at connects to do that. And I think that that's a philosophical choice that you need to figure out. But I think like, you know, for me, I think that everything is gameable. Everything can be figured out. We just don't want people doing empty calories. I think it's just like, where can you find the truest source of data so that people can understand what you're doing? And do you clearly communicate to people why you're having them do it so that it's not just like, well, I got to check this box so I don't get in trouble. You know, 200 dials a day, keep your manager away. You know, like that doesn't work in sales. So Armand, maybe not the big fight you were hoping for. I actually agree with all of that. The biggest reason why I have gravitated towards measuring conversations, not calls, is that's what my teams have preferred to be measured by. That is something that is easier for them to buy into psychologically. It ends up being the same thing, right? Because the ultimate outcome is sufficient pipeline to hit our targets. Ultimately, what I want is weighted pipeline for next quarter, always increasing, Quote attainment for this quarter, always consistent. But when I'm rolling this out and the reps are deep in their feedback, I get more buy-in and more excitement that they can go chase down conversations. And so for me, because it is probably tomato, tomato, potato, potato, whatever the reps prefer, I'll measure it. And I'm going to pick my battles when a rep says, well, I really want to get bonus points for some worthless activity and I don't want to give credit for that. So I agree with it. I've found benefit in the conversations piece simply because from a rep psychology standpoint, they have been more motivated by that metric. But it's still really important for me to know number of dials because then I can look at conversions, right? I still want to know how many calls did they make to get X number of conversations, how many converted conversations from initial meeting opportunity all the way through the funnel, all super important to me. But all the good day framework is trying to accomplish is reps know every single day what a good outcome is. And I know every single day which ones are not. And then I have a big amount of data to go coach off of. I can go see what types of points they're earning are leading to good outcomes. We can go look at reps' data and say, okay, this rep, it takes them 14 points on average to book a DM. It takes this rep eight points on average to book a DM. Where are the differences? It becomes a coaching tool. So how I define what we measure isn't as important to me as long as it's leading to a good outcome. So I think this is interesting because to you guys' point, it's a little bit of tomato to model. I guess I'll stoke the fire a little bit because one of my SDR managers back at PAVE, he switched the team to tracking commits instead of dials. And I was freaking pissed. And the reason I was pissed is I was like, any idiot can make 200 bad dials, but I want you to make 200 good dials, not 200 idiotic dials. And so... Make your 200 freaking cold calls, you lazy bum. That's your North Star metric. But your constraint metric is you need to make those 200 dials at a connect rate that is not abysmal. And you need to have a set rate that is 
over 15%. Otherwise, you freaking suck on the phones, dude or gal. But you cannot get to 20 connects off of 20 dials. It's just nearly impossible. And that's why I usually found that it was most helpful to give them the leading indicator that no matter what they could control, they could always control how many times they picked up the phone and then coach to how they do that thing more intelligently or more effectively. But again, he was speaking to the people and I know the refs were starting to complain about not being coached to connects versus being coached to volume of dials. Armand, I think it's an important point there is like when you set, and I think you were talking about this a little bit earlier too, Kyle, this is when you set a metric that isn't controllable, like for example, your favorite metric is next quarter weighted pipeline coverage, right? Because you can always control that. I can sit down every day and can control making 200 quality dials. There's nothing that keeps me from doing that except for my own will. But I don't know if I can control getting 10 connects every day. Right. Like, I just don't know if that's going to happen, if I'm going to get people. And so that's where I think it gets tough is like, I want something that somebody can look at at the end of the day. And to your point, be like, I did my job today. I might not have booked a meeting. I might not talk to a single person, but you know what? My job is to make my 200 high quality dials and I did that. So I did my job. And I think that that's where the manager comes in is the manager's job is efficacy, the ability to affect change. Can you get somebody to change behavior, results, mindset, energy? Can you do that or not, right? And so if you can start with something that somebody can control, you can say, listen, are you doing the thing that you have total control over or not? And then can I change your results based on what you're doing? The manager's job is to take the effort of the rep and turn it into execution for the business. And that's where I like to have effort be something that nobody can tell me, hey, I couldn't do that yesterday because of X, Y, and Z. Like, no excuses. This is what we're going to do. If you're doing that every day and it's not working out, that's your manager's fault. And your manager needs to dig in and help you turn that effort into execution. I mean, I think just to kind of wrap the bow on the good day piece is with the way I have it set up is you can still have a good day if you don't get anybody live on the phone. There's other ways that you can earn points towards this. There's other high value activities. I like to track adding new contacts to your cadence, fresh prospects for your prospecting cadence, right? Getting information via email exchange, setting meetings through email, personal development, creating opportunities off a discovery call. I think one of the biggest things I like to manage away from is reps confusing busy work with productivity, because there are some reps, fair or not, that will fall into the trap of, well, I made a bunch of calls today, didn't talk to anybody, didn't progress anything, but I still worked hard. That's an anomaly. I don't think it's a huge concern, but I really want reps thinking about outcomes tied back to the inputs that they're making. And so I try to find some balance in this and not have it be so binary, where a good day can be had even if I make my calls and I don't talk to anybody, however, I'm still incentivizing, have a high quality list, fresh prospects to call, increasing the likelihood that somebody will pick up and then coaching towards messaging to more likely to convert conversations to meetings. But the beauty of this whole thing is any manager, any rep can go adopt it to match your philosophy, what motivates your reps. It shouldn't be the same for me, Mark and Armand. It should actually mm. be completely different because we're different leaders, different people, and that's okay. Kyle, I really like this concept of mutual agreement and then accountability. And it's flexible. It takes into account someone's own opinion so that they have ownership over it. Like, how are you 
helping managers conduct those conversations so that the things that a rep and a manager agree on are really important, impactful things. And they don't kind of get off into some la-la land where the stuff that they're agreeing on isn't really going to help that rep be better. So I think there's, a, there's an interesting perception whenever I'm at a company of people outside my org that look at our process, look at our structure, and they'll think, oh, that looks kind of micromanagement y right? Like you got this good day framework, you're tracking points, you've got this competency document, you're tracking all these skills, all these numbers. And it can look that way until you take into account what you just talked about, Mark, is the complete buy-in. And so I need to enable my leaders to answer the question. My leaders need to be able to snuff out the crap, right? Like I've seen situations where reps will give their manager, hey, here's what I think you should expect of me. And it's terrible, right? My leaders, I need to enable them to know what are good outcomes. And that should be consistent across the business, right? We need to have strong definitions for what does a promotion look like? What does good enough look like? And then what is not satisfactory to be employed in our sales org? That needs to be consistent across teams. My leaders need to know what that looks like and be able to identify it. That allows them when working with the reps to get their buy-in on what they think they should be working on, what they think they should be held accountable to, that it passes the sniff test. That part's really pretty easy. The hard part in my experience has been helping leaders that are gravitating to the friend side of leadership have those harder conversations and actually hold people truly accountable. And it's the shift away from, well, I'm, I'm here to be liked, I'm here to be respected, to so know you are here to get the most out of these individuals that you're managing. And then my tagline, just to kind of seal the deal with my leaders, is look, if you have a rep that doesn't want to be held accountable to what they've agreed makes them successful, and you've agreed to make them successful, why would you want to work with them? And they never have a good answer for that question, because we work in a high performing environment, and we want to work with people that want to hit their capacity. Boom. The final question. There are a lot of good habits we talked about today, and we're going to talk about a bad one to break instead. So if there were one bad leadership habit that you could snap your fingers and make sure no one ever did it ever again in the world, what would that bad habit to break be? Decisions off of data without understanding context. It's so easy in QBRs, it's so easy in a senior leadership role to go look at data and build this story to support what you think is happening. And then you can go say or do things that you regret because you're upset, you're anxious, you're stressed. There is almost always context that while your decision may still be correct, may change the way you communicate it. And so I'm a big data guy, but as a leader, don't ever go make final decisions and decide how you're going to communicate things off of just the data. Form a hypothesis, go get the context, then make your decision. Well, Kyle, this was an outstanding episode. Everyone hang in for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Cheers, folks. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. 
Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. And if you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's sales email tip is brought to you by Lavender. If you want to get more replies to your sales emails, try removing exclamation points and question marks from your email subject lines. They cause open rates to plummet. Instead, make the subject line feel internal. It should be short, one to three words, and it should showcase the topic of the email, but also be about them. We sat down with Lavender and built a sales email framework guide with emails for every step of your sales process. And there is a link in the show notes to get it for free. All righty, Mark. What'd you think? Listen, I said it at the introduction that I think that he has a level of documentation and frameworks that is quite honestly like impressive. You know, I haven't seen many people that can come with that level of detail. And I think what's most interesting about this specific podcast is you can tell this dude lives and reads this stuff. Like he can go through that list. He can talk about every single thing. His methodology, he's not coming up with stuff on the spot. He is delivering the same sermon he delivers to his frontline managers every Sunday. And he did that on the podcast. You can feel the authenticity of what he's doing. That's right, folks. And so a little surprise here is Mark actually asked, he's like, hey, can I see (laughs) all of those competencies you have mapped out? And Kyle pulled up a big spreadsheet of all the competencies, how he coaches to them, how he tracks them. You can actually get that in the show notes right now. So Kyle's giving that away for free to you all. So go check out all of his competencies. Go give Kyle some love on LinkedIn because he puts out some awesome freaking content. And stay tuned for the next one on 30MPC. Peace out. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes.